From Dublin City University, I'm Dave Robbins, and this is Code Red, the climate change podcast from Ireland Centre for Climate and Society. Today's episode looks at the recent boom in nature writing from people in the UK like Robert McFarlane and Isabella Tree to three Irish writers who are joining us via Zoom for today's discussion. They are Mary Reynolds, who is the author of two books, The Garden Awakening, published in 2016, and We Are the Ark, Returning Our Gardens to Their True Nature Through Acts of Restorative Kindness, published last year. She was the youngest person to win a gold medal at the Chelsea Flower Show in 2002 and refers to herself as a reformed landscape designer. In recent years, Mary has founded the We Are the Ark, a movement that encourages the rewilding of our gardens. We also have Porrick Fogarty, who's the author of Whittled Away, Ireland's Vanishing Nature, which has recently been followed by a podcast series called Shaping New Mountains. Porrick has a background in ecology and works with the Irish Wildlife Trust in his role of campaigns officer, and he's also the editor of Irish Wildlife magazine. We're also joined by Owen Daltoon. Owen is the author of the book An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding. Owen runs a high nature value farm and rewilding project on the Bear Peninsula in County Cork. In today's episode, we're just exploring the recent renaissance, maybe you could call it, in nature writing, books about rewilding. And maybe we'll go round each of you and ask if you agree that there has been this renaissance, renewed interest in books about nature. And if you do, what do you think is behind it? So, Mary, could I start with you? Sure. Um, I guess the thing that jumps out is, is the fact that it's becoming fairly obvious and 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 the facts are coming out that 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 like like Porig has always said nature has already collapsed <laughs> here in Ireland and I think people are becoming more and more aware of that and when something is disappearing people suddenly start to value it weirdly it's you know maybe by the skin of our teeth this sudden renewed interest and love in sustaining life on the planet <laughs> might um you know it might it might be enough to to pull us back from the brink you never know okay porrick do you see a kind of renaissance in this type of literature and what's behind it do you think uh i'm not sure um i mean nature writing has always been very popular there's always been a you know a nature section in the local bookshop but i definitely think the tone of the books and the publications has changed of late because of the climate and the biodiversity crisis um i do wonder do people have the appetite for it though uh, i still find and maybe it's a broader subject about writing in general let's say in our in our newspapers or that that people like the nature writing in the way that people have liked nature tv programs for a long time you know they're very beautiful and soothing to watch but do people have the appetite to really go deeper into 
the critical issues behind why we have a biodiversity crisis. It's getting better, but it's still nowhere near where it needs to be, I think. Okay, Owen, are you part of this renaissance? Uh, Do you think it's happening? Why do you think it's happening? Well, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that I'm just a little bit isolated down here on the Bear Peninsula. So I sometimes feel that I'm kind of looking at things from a bit of a distance. But that said, my perception is that I'd agree with what Mary said and Porik. I think, yeah, there has always been this sort of writing, but my feeling is that there's an upsurge and there seems to me to be a massive increase in interest around how we relate to the natural world, the state the natural world is in, and how we fix the, the problems that are having such a catastrophic effect. For, I guess, about a year or a year and a half before my book came out, and much more so since then, I've just been inundated by requests from people looking for advice about how to rewild a half an acre that they have up in Cavan or three acres down in West Clare or literally I'm, I'm fielding three or four different types of requests not necessarily all of that exact nature every single day now what I feel is that people really feel they have very little to grab onto because we have we virtually no wild nature left in this country really i mean ireland is just one big farm and even our national parks are in such a wrecked state i mean where do people go to experience what real wild nature means in ireland that's the difficulty yeah i was wondering for myself I think uh, your book, Pori Whittled Away, and Isabella Tree's book, that's when I date this new interest in, in nature writing from. I wonder for each of you, can you think of like a, a turning point or a tipping point or a moment when the zeitgeist changed a little bit and, and the, the interest in this started to increase? Mary, maybe I'd ask you that first. Well, mine is... Uh, it was a personal moment. It, like, obviously, I've been influenced by Porig's book and Isabel Tree's book and Owen's book, but I didn't read them till later. But um, one one day, I was looking out my window and I saw a fox run past in the winter time, and a couple of hares chasing the fox, and I kept watching. Um, and there was a hedgehog heading in the same direction. Um, should have been asleep, hibernating. You know, they tend to be only out at night. Um. And it was winter, so I kind of went in the direction they were coming from, and I, I went across this the road, the country lane I live in, Wexford, and there used to be this really thick, um, impenetrable field full of you know native plants, a recovering ecosystem, you know, thorny blackthorns and hawthorns and gorse and all those things. And you couldn't get into it, but somebody had got planning permission at the top of the field to build a house, and they'd gone in with a digger and they'd cleared it out within minutes without any thought for the creatures that called it home. And for me, that was my moment because I I stood there thinking, oh, if, you know, if I've, I've done this myself so many times and I'm not doing this ever again. And I went back inside and started researching and realised that all these creatures have really nowhere really left to go. Um, 
And even though we're completely and hopelessly dependent upon the web of life staying intact, being abundant, being healthy, we are expecting someone else to take care of them. And, you know, we certainly can't ex expect any political leadership, really. In my opinion, there is none. They look after the corporations and, you know, they, they're caught in a web of their own weaving. They can't, they can't seem to do anything. Even though we do have to change things at policy level, but I also think we have to give people, including myself, hope. And by restoring the ecosystem on your own patch of the planet and seeing how quickly nature can recover, if, if we give her a chance and support her to do that and restore native plant ecosystems in as many layers as possible, being aware that, you know, really those tiny patches of, of pure wildness that are left are where all the hope lies. But by restoring hope patch by patch in people's own hearts, it gives, gives people a chance to actually think, that they can do something because otherwise, what's the point? I mean, you're not going to change your light bulbs or recycle isn't going to make you feel like there's any hope at the end of the day. But if you see how quickly we can restore the planet, if we just do something. And so um, even though we were up against the agricultural lobbies and the forestry lobbies and everybody else, it's pretty devastating when you start to open up your eyes and look at what's going on. And so... If you can just do your own bit, that'll give you some hope and give you some energy to go out and actually try and instigate change in other areas or lobby or whatever, you know, because otherwise you're you feel a bit hopeless. I think most people do. OK, so that that winter morning with the fox and the hares and the hedgehog was a kind of light bulb moment for you. Porik, I'm wondering, do, do you date this resurgence from a particular book or any particular time or event or maybe, like Mary, it was, it was just a personal experience for you? Uh, for me, uh, I think it was 2013 and uh, two things happened. One, I read a book called The Unnatural History of the Sea by Callum Roberts who is a marine biologist in the University of York in England. And he talked about the history of life in the ocean at a scale that uh, I had never read before. Like he went back hundreds of years. He went to look at records of pirates in the Caribbean to describe the sheer abundance of life that existed in the ocean compared to what's there today. And there was a part of the idea of shifting baselines, which wasn't his idea, but, you know, this idea that we readjust our expectations every generation or so because of the longer term trends in declining in nature. But I think the other thing that really... I mean, I was an absolutely, it was like the ground opened up beneath me. The time I uh, saw for the first time the ad for Origin Green, which, uh, if you're not aware of, was a marketing campaign initiated by Board Bia, which is the, the marketing body of the Irish government that sells our food and drink abroad. And it featured the, uh, the now very famous actress, Saoirse Ronan, walking through a field and her hands were brushing off the wheat and the sun was setting. And the lines were in it like, you know, Ireland has always been this green and our seas have always teemed with fish. And whatever it is about us, uh, we just know how to live in harmony with nature. 
Now, at that stage, I had studied ecology in University College Cork. I had been working for the Irish Wildlife Trust as a volunteer. And, you know, we were we were kind of on the front lines, as it were, in, in terms of arguing about what was then blatantly apparent to anybody who was looking about the rising in greenhouse gases, the deterioration of our water quality, the extinction of species, deterioration of habitats, everything. But then watch it, watching this multi-million euro ad campaign I just felt, oh my God, we are totally losing this battle. Because people watch ads like Origin Green and, you know, to a lesser extent, the Wild Atlantic Way, the image of ourselves as being green and the image of mountains as just naturally having sheep in the middle of the road um, has just been ingrained in us. And I thought this is surely the most dangerous thing that is going to happen to nature in Ireland over the coming decade because it was done in a parallel way with an economic expansion plan for our food and drinks. Uh, so this was, you know, almost kind of like the uh, the smoke and mirrors to allow this major industrial expansion in our countryside and this major deterioration in our environment to happen, to give it public license because we are, you know, inherently origin green. It's in our DNA. Now, that has obviously caught up with us in the last decade. But for me, I mean, I remember my mouth was just open going, what the hell? It's not just that nobody has been listening to us, but we are now being literally driven over by a steamroller that is paid for by taxpayers' money and uh, and is just trying to sweep away all of these problems under the carpet. So for me, that was the time I felt, oh my God, well, we have to change tack. That was actually what started me on this um, on the idea of writing something. I didn't originally set out to write a book, but uh, it was almost kind of like, oh my God, even ecologists in the country at that time would tell you, oh no, 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 Ireland is a farmed country. You know, I mean, this isn't the place for forests or big predators or, you know, the natural laws of the ecosystem. Ireland is totally different as a part. So, I mean, we'd all been kind of anaesthetized by this message. And I thought, well, that has to change first if we're going to change uh, anything else after that okay okay i i remember that board be a campaign i think very soon afterwards six of the eight companies who were part of that campaign were fined by the epa for environmental license breaches so um it was a bit of a pr disaster uh, soon afterwards oh and i don't know if you could address the bigger societal picture if you think there was a turning point when society began to care more about this and your own moment when you said right I'm, I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to write my book I'm going to um, tend to my uh, rainforest well it's easier for me to to start by just speaking personally my journey began when I bought a 73 acre farm down on the Bear Peninsula in West Cork uh, and I did that because I had I, I had um, a desire to, to have a closer relationship with the natural world and I, I, I also had a thing about trees and much of the farm I bought was covered in wild native forest. But I also knew that the, the forest was ecologically trashed by overgrazing and by invasion by rhododendron and a bunch of other non-native invasive species. So. After moving down here in 2009, I started, you know, getting rid of the invasive species, but I also plunged myself into a kind of a voracious program of reading about initially woodland ecology. So people like Oliver Rackham and and George Peterkin, that soon expanded to 
conservation biologists like Edward O. Wilson and Michael Soule and Daniel Jansen, people like that. But I think for me, a really pivotal book by an American writer called Caroline Fraser, and it's, it's called Rewilding the World, Dispatches from the Conservation Revolution. It's a fantastic book. This was, I suppose, the first I'd really heard of rewilding. I heard about it and I got myself a copy of this book and it was my introduction to the whole area. And that just really, really opened my mind to, to the possibilities and to really start thinking in ecosystem terms, to start thinking about how it all fits together and the things that we do as a species that stop it from functioning as it should, you know. Uh, a couple of years later, George Monbiot published Feral. Now, I knew it was coming and I was aware of Monbiot, so I was really looking forward to it. And as a book, it really didn't disappoint. And I would say that for a lot of people, George Monbiot's Feral is it's kind of a benchmark, really, certainly on these islands, because up until then, a lot of writing about rewilding had been American-centered or international, international in some way, rather than focused on this part of the world. But also because Monbiot is just very, very good at taking something and examining it from all sorts of angles that mightn't, might never occur to other, other writers. Looking at it from from the personal perspective as well, what it would mean to us, to our lives, to to live in a wilder environment, and and the kind of atavistic parts of us that still hark back to a time when we lived as hunter gatherers. Beyond that, there are a couple of other books that I would have read. One of them is called Keeping the Wild. It's a selection of short pieces by about twenty different writers. And each one is an absolute just, you know, blasts out all the cobwebs. It's just really calling things out as they are and how things need to change so radically. Uh, so that book was a big one for me. Porrick's Whittled Away was important to just call out how bad things are on this island and what needs to be done to change that. So, you know, that was really fundamental. But I think for me as well, the reading was one side of things because I was spending an awful lot of time in the woods, whether working to restore the forest or else just kind of pottering about and, and getting, getting a feel of the place, getting, getting to know what I had there. There was this kind of um, weaving of reading with actually being in a wild place. Okay, thanks very much, Owen. Just your mentioning of Mambio brings me into something else I wanted to ask you about, that the rewilding of nature has to go alongside the rewilding of people. It speaks to what you were saying about the atavistic part of us that is still there. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, about have, have we as, as, a, as a society and as kind of civ a Western type of civilization just become too trammeled, too unused to anything wild? Is it all a bit uh, sort of dangerous and unpredictable for us? You know, and do we really need to rewild ourselves? Mary, would you like to, to speak to that one? 
Um, yeah, sure. Well, uh, shifting baseline syndrome has a lot to a lot to kind of throw in in the direction of that. Um, in that we don't really have a clue what's wild anymore. Most of us, you know, but um, our ancestors always believed that um, that we were basically mirror reflections of the earth beneath our feet. You know, you know the 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 state of 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 the earth was a direct reflection of the health of its people. That's how it was understood. And, you know, you can see that today in the lack of kind of wildness, you know, in people. We've all become quite complacent and um, what's the word? Everything is about um, convenience, you know, and convenience is the root of all evil, I think. You know, We're all terribly disconnected from the natural world and from our own true natures, you know, and it's very hard for people because they don't really have any experience of what nature is anymore. And their only experience is their urban parks a lot of the time or their gardens if they're lucky enough to have one. And, you know, there's nothing natural about them at all, really, other than they have roots <laughs> into, into a very damaged earth. Um, but they're not ecosystems. They're not native plants generally. They're, you know, everything is controlled and sprayed within an inch of its life. Um and I always feel as well that the earth is like the embodiment of the feminine energy. And so a direct reflection of the feminine and women and girls these days, they there's this pressure to stay young and to stay static and be pretty. The value is put on women if they're pretty or productive. Otherwise, there's not much value there. And it's the same with land. You know, and it's just, again, a mirror of how we treat women in the world or the feminine, um, the body of the earth. Yeah, I mean, it's our health is slowly, slowly degrading, as is the health of the earth. It's it's hand in hand. That's just how I look at it anyway, you know. Okay, And could I ask you, you've been writing or you've been working at your computer and you want to reconnect. You want to feel that life around you. What do you do? Well, I'm lucky enough to have some land. My mantra is to people, like, if you want to save the planet, then start with your own patch of it, if you have one. So allow that patch of earth to become its own true nature in whatever level of that you can support it to be. And that will give sanctuary to as many creatures as it can. Um, by by sitting in a wild place, you you feel accepted, as opposed to going into a, into a controlled garden which is really not natural at all it makes you feel disconnected so simple as that okay Parik I might put that question to you about the, the need for human beings to rewild themselves as well it's a really fascinating area of discussion because it cuts across so many different disciplines uh, because ecology of course is the study of connections and you know, when you start talking about people and nature, you're you're really into the realm of really kind of very, very uh, a paradox, uh, I suppose, because as Mary described, we have totally disconnected ourselves from the natural world around us. But yet we haven't, you know, I mean, ultimately we haven't because uh, we depend completely on nature for our survival. I think what has happened is that kind of knowledge, that wisdom has been, you know, really eroded substantially so that people don't believe that they really depend on nature or or wonder, well, how do I depend on nature? Sure, if I want food, I just go to the supermarket, you know, that this 
remove from nature is almost complete. But yet it's not complete because people understand it. You know, when you say it to them that you, you depend on nature, the vast majority of people will agree with you. But I think the flip side of that also is, particularly when you're working as an environmentalist, that we have to put people into the picture as well. This thought came to me quite dramatically uh, a good few years ago when I met a field worker who was trying to save curlews. And she was telling me how frustrated she was and upset she was almost because she'd gone to college. She'd done her degree on zoology or one of those natural sciences. There's no mention of people in any of these ecology books. There's no mention of our economic system, for instance, in any of these ecology books. They talk about plants and animals that aren't human and how they interact with each other. And she went out into the field uh, to meet the farmer, all prepared to tell him about curlews and their migrations and what they eat and what they need to survive. And yet she really didn't know how to talk to the farmer because the farmer was struggling to make a living. And the farmer was thinking about the inspectors going to come from the Department of Agriculture. And if the inspector's not happy, that's my income getting chipped away. I'm worried about the price that I'm going to get for my animals down at the mart. I'm thinking maybe I need to drain this land if I want to increase my productivity. And so this uh, ecologist was telling me this because she was totally unprepared for all of those things that are of fundamental importance to the farmer who was the ultimate guardian of this patch of land on which the curlews were nesting. And so this is enorm an enormous disconnect in our world. I say that as an as a, a environmentalist. And so we have to be putting people back into the picture as well. So it does, it comes back to your question about do we, we need to rewild ourselves? I think, I mean, yes, we do. But we also need to be putting people into the picture across the board on absolutely everything. You know, like Mary was talking about, the striking parallels really between feminism and environmentalism, the way that nature has been seen as almost like a disposable object to be used and eaten up by predacious forces in the world. You know, these are the connections that we need to be uh, identifying. And I think the reward for doing that is being able to not only restore abundance and health to the natural world, but also address a lot of our societal problems, whether that is inequality and injustices, uh, wherever they may be. But it seems to be very, you know, a very difficult thing to do at a policy level. Our policymakers are trained just to think in terms of solving one problem and not thinking about the other problems that that solution might create. Yeah. Owen, what's your take on people ne needing to be rewilded as well? Well, I mean, the, the fundamental problem that we have is that we've been going in a certain direction for so long, which is one of a cr increased efficiency in terms of how we take a piece of land and convert it into a state that's productive just for ourselves to the increasing exclusion of all of their life. So whether we call it rewilding ourselves or not, we need to radically rethink how we relate to our home planet in every single way. And we need to understand how we got to the place where we're at now, how our ancestors lived and how things changed down through the centuries and thousands of years. And also questioning what and who we are as a species, because 
Our problematic relationship with the natural world didn't start any time recently. We've had a, a difficult relationship with the rest of life on the planet for probably around two million years. The thing about it is that it's just been increasing and increasing because of our ever more perfected technologies and, and just our ability. We're now everywhere on the planet, whereas two million years ago, we were in small part of Africa. This question comes a little bit from your Twitter feed, Owen. I wonder if you have a sense that Irish people's notion of what a healthy landscape looks like is changing. And it comes back to a bit of George Monbiot, I think in that book, Feral coins the phrase sheep wrecked. Are we beginning to understand that the landscape, say in the west of Ireland, which we have been conditioned to think of as wild and natural, are we beginning to understand that it's ecologically dead? Porik, would you like to, to I'll, I'll come to you in a second, I just let Porik have a go at that one. Uh, yeah, I think I think it is, and um, and I think that's wonderful to see that uh, to see that happening. People have said to me who have read my book, they say to me, uh, "Porik, you've completely ruined all my holidays in Ireland." And I say, "Well, that's great. That's real progress," and and Owen is doing that as well, you know, through his his his, uh, his work, and uh, and I think that's fantastic because. Um, we really have to go into the trough before we can start climbing the mountain, in a way. We will never get a handle on the scale of the problem if we don't fully accept the scale of the problem. And that involves reconnect with our landscape. Of course, that's a very difficult thing to do because we've been conditioned to look at it in a certain way. We've been told that, you know, Ireland is green fields and hedgerows. And in many ways it is, uh, it still is, but, you know, the, the green fields are soaked in nitrogen and pesticides and the hedgerows have been butchered into little squares so they're not the same green fields that they used to be but that that re-engagement with our landscape I think is happening and I, I think you see it most acutely in conversations around forests and uh, forestry and you know myself included I was brought up to the Wicklow Mountains as a child to walk through these conifer plantations and I was told this was a nature walk I never questioned that. We used to see frogs in the ditches. You know, you might see some birds flying around. But now that's changed. Now people are, are beginning to realise that these are actually dead zones that I'm walking through. And then, of course, because people are travelling so much that, you know, when they're going abroad, they're frequently seeing actual forests. They're visiting natural parks that actually have wildlife in them. And they're coming home and going, you know, what have we, what have we done here? We've brutalised our country. And that's a very negative message. And that's the, maybe the hard pill to swallow. But I think once people do that and accept the damage, then the, the logic of the things that we're talking about here, the solutions that Mary and Owen have been talking about now for a long time, become really clear that, you know, what the hell are we doing? Mowing our grass twice a week. That's completely senseless. You know, what the hell are we doing? Sending hundreds of thousands of sheep up onto our hills just to keep it bare and, and lifeless. It just doesn't make any sense. And then the whole logic of the system falls apart. I mean, the politicians are always the hard ones to convince and the civil servants, but they will follow. You know, they will respond. I do see it happening already, but it's a very welcome development, uh, I'd have to say. Okay. Thanks, Park. M Mary, do you, do you think we, we are beginning to change our view of what's, what's a natural landscape? 
I think it's easy for those of us who are working in this kind of world to think it's changing. But I, I don't see it changing when I'm standing on the sidelines of pitches talking to people or anything. You know, just in general, I, I haven't seen that shift yet. However, I do a lot of work abroad, you know, um, and particularly in America. And when I'm talking to clients in the States, it's very interesting. A lot of them, pretty much all of them actually want to talk to me about how they've been to Ireland and they're really upset at how dead it is. And I think it's going to take, maybe that shift is going to help as well, that the tourists are starting to realise that, you know, nature doesn't really exist here. That that Ireland that they've been sold isn't isn't here anymore. And the, the fact that they want to talk to me about that, I think is indicative of the fact that that image hasn't sold well abroad and you know the Irish have always been a bit like this where you have to you have to be told from outside really first before you see it as a valid opinion or a valid kind of way forward so I'm kind of hoping that that will you know trickle down as well. That's very interesting. Owen are we beginning to see these these hills as dead zones? I really think we are yeah and I think it's you know, it's important to understand as well how change happens. It never happens that everybody kind of gets it all at once. You, you always start out with a kind of a small band of people who feel they're crying in the wilderness for a long time. And then the message spreads to a few more and a few more. And then all of a sudden you get a kind of a, a, a flip and everybody then thinks that. Just the other day, I heard from somebody that Michal Martin had nearly finished reading my book and it was having a really positive, radical effect on him. Now, as um, Mary said, politicians tend to only move when they're forced to. And Michal Martin came out there only a few weeks ago and said how we need to be looking at rewilding and stuff. Now, absolutely granted, we need to be taking statements like that with a very big pinch of salt because politicians are experts at coming out and saying things and then doing absolutely nothing or doing the the total opposite. But I think the the very fact that this kind of language has entered into the, the national discourse, the national conversation, and is acceptable is a sign of a, a massive change. And I'm just constantly seeing that. I feel that there's a real hunger out there on the part of not everybody, but a lot of people for ways in which they can kind of engage with the planet that we live on and make things and start making things better. There's, there's an awareness that things aren't, are really bad. The problem that most people have is that they just don't know how to do that because, you know, maybe they're living on a housing estate somewhere and the local park is just nothing there except a kind of a lawn and a, a couple of trees here and there. I mean, how, how do they even begin? And I think that's the difficulty for people. They don't know how to get engaged often. Okay. We're running out of time here, guys. And I did want to ask one more writerly type of question. We've talked broadly about our relationship with nature and, and rewilding and so on. But from a writer's point of view, 
I would have thought writing about the natural world is quite difficult. I, maybe I was traumatised from my English degree of having to read Thomas Hardy years ago. And I remember reading The Return of the Native and there's about a hundred pages of descriptive writing about the landscape in Wessex. That must have put me off. So I was kind of thinking about this coming up to today's programme about how you guys would go about constructing your work, but how do you introduce plot into a book like the type of books you write? How do you think about characters? How do you structure it? How do you kind of introduce any narrative tension? Or are these things you really think about at all? Yeah, Porik, would you, I know that's a big question. Would you like to have a stab at that? Well, that is a big question. And I mean, I don't know if I'm even a writer, you know, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I write uh, these days, I write, you know, blogs about policies and stuff. And I know you've to, uh, a, you know, you've to introduce these elements, you know, even if you're writing uh, nonfiction. I mean, on the one hand, there's no shortage of bad guys. And there's no shortage of good guys uh, and girls. And there's no shortage of tension. One of the challenges maybe is, um, I read a lot of scientific papers and government policy documents, which obviously would, you know, knock anybody out in the first minute and a half. But I, I make my way through them and what I, I try to use them to tell stories about what's happening in Ireland today to reflect the science or the, the government thinking, you know, what's going on inside the head of the beast in terms of how we're dealing with all of these things. But I have also tried to bring in the stories of the people who are making a difference. You know, there are a lot of people out there who are doing things on the ground in their own patch, whether that's farmers or activists or local community organizers. So um, I do always keep an eye out for them. I edit a magazine as well. I, I frequently ask them to write the story. So I'm not always doing this stuff myself. <laughs> OK, uh, Mary, how do you co come to this? I mean, lyrical writing about nature can be very moving as well. But in terms of like for a wider readership, does there need to be a narrative? Does there need to be these different aspects of tension and resolution and so on? I think what people remember are stories, like Porig was saying, they don't remember information facts generally you know well I certainly don't and um, I forget them pretty fast but I remember images and stories and I think um, I try and weave stories through my writing so that people remember those and I think when you're passionate about something and you're, you're writing from your heart it touches other people's hearts and so it's not really like there's any rhyme or reason to um, <laughs> my book, certainly, you know, other than to try and um, weave stories through them to try. And I'm constantly trying to, to, to throw out threads to tie other people's hearts into m my passion and love, which is the natural world, you know, which is kind of stupid because like the natural world includes us. And then every time I hear that, I think and it doesn't really anymore, you know, but I mean, like like Parag was saying and we all say is that it, it, we don't exist without the rest of the web of life. It's kind of stupid. You know, we don't exist unless the rest of the creatures we share the planet with are here in abundant health. And so it's the most important work we have left is to start taking care of what we have left and make sure that it thrives again. 
I don't have any writing skills other than writing from my heart, you know, that's it. Yeah. Oh, and how about you? How do you approach your writing with, with any of these kind of literary considerations in mind? Well, I think both Parik and Mary have both touched on the difficulty at, at the centre of it, which is that if you're talking about nature and the ecosystems and how they work and how we stop them working, you're, you're delving into science and you can't avoid the science. The whole thing loses any meaning. You, you may as well not bother because the science is, has to be core to what you do. But on the other hand, you have to understand how people's minds work. And as Mary says, we do, we absorb information and things have impact with us when they come in the form of stories that we can relate to in a personal way. And I guess like, you know, there's there's nature writing where you just wax lyrical about the birds and the bees and the trees and the flowers, but you don't touch on how bad things are for all of that or what needs to be done to change that uh, there is that type of nature writing you couldn't say that it's it's pointless but we really need to be tackling the, the cores of the issues which is how we turn the collapse of the natural world around and if we aren't i don't see the point and so the difficulty is to bring the science and the ecology and the statistics to people but in a way that they will engage with and that they won't just turn off. And I had an interesting um, experience there just a couple of weeks ago, which kind of really brought this home to me in a very unusual way, which was that I was in the Cork Opera House being interviewed by Blind Boy Podcast. And it was all really surreal, you know, sitting there in front of 800 people talking to a guy with a plastic bag over his head. <laughs> the, the, the surprising thing is that it worked really well. And the reason why was because we were alternating between talking about rewilding and ecology and how terrible things are in those terms in Ireland with Blind Boy kind of going off on kind of wild ones about all sorts of crazy stuff. But what that did was it brought people along. They were carried through my maybe kind of slightly heavier material and they absorbed that. And then they were kind of buoyed along by blind boys, kind of out there anecdotes and word journeys. Maybe I'm going to have to look at the whole plastic bag option going forward for this, this podcast. Anything anybody really wanted to kind of say or get off their chest that I maybe didn't get to? There is one thing I'm, I'm interested in, and you guys might know the answer to this, which is, um, is there any movement towards, because I did a degree in agriculture in UCD, and um, there was no talk of biodiversity or nature at all. Like, And I'm wondering if there's any um, movement towards actually making it obligatory for foresters and farmers to understand, like Porig said, the connections that are vital in order for us to have a future, you know? What I'd say is that so long as things continue to be set up in such a way that farmers are pushed to maximise production at the expense of all else, it doesn't really serve, it wouldn't really make much difference if they were being taught about the, the web of life. 
farmers have to make a living within the, the, the constraints of the system as it exists. And there really is no incentive for farmers to, to care about anything beyond just production as things stand, you know, there really isn't. And that's what needs to change fundamentally. I think that if, for example, farmers had the, the, the option of being paid for not farming, for rewilding, you'd see, you'd see a revolution in those terms, not, not, not amongst all farmers. There'd be plenty who'd want to continue as they're going, but I think plenty would say, yeah, that this is, I really get this. This is something I really want to do. You know, but it has to it has to make financial sense for them. You can't expect farmers to to give up what is their livelihood. On a personal level, I would just like to say thank you so much for what you're doing. You're really making a difference. And thank you for the giving of your time to come and talk about it for our podcast. And there's lots to chew on there. A lot of insights and perspectives that'll give our listeners hopefully plenty to think about. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Code Red, the climate change podcast from the DCU Centre for Climate and Society. Code Red is produced by Monica Hayes, with help from sound engineers Owen Campbell and Damien Hickey from the DCU School of Communications. And it's made in association with Deloitte, founding philanthropic partner for our DCU Centre.